All right, well, today we are going to return to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and continue the message we started last week called Rooftop Experiences. Recall last week as we dived into 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read a very familiar text pertaining to the adulterous relationship that happens between David and Bathsheba. We began to dissect that text, taking the methodical, timely manner It only really got through the first couple of verses of the 17 in which we read. But we found, even though it was only two verses that we dissected of the 17, there was still plenty of application within. The first application to remind ourselves was that Satan always finds some mischief for idle hands to do. Remember the contextual situation is that David is at home in the palace. He is not at war. We identified David as one who often uses a sword, which means he is a king that goes to war, a warring king quite often. His son Solomon never did, but David was known as one who had used a sword upon multiple occasions, and typically, as the springtime would come and people returned to war, David would accompany his men. This time he did not. And as he is at home, He's taken an afternoon nap, or he's resting one particular afternoon, and as he wakes, he walks to the rooftop. Remember, he sees a woman bathing. As he sees the woman bathing, we know her as Bathsheba, who could not resist the temptation to look. But not only did he look, he looked again, nor he looked longer. Perhaps he stared, he certainly lusted, and then he sought her out. We noted how his idle time, because he's not at war, his time at home, his idle time, his leisure time, got the best of him. He fell to Satan's trap. We stated the obvious, which is that had he had been where he belonged, like he typically would be at war with his troops, there never would have been a Bathsheba episode. And applying David's fall then to our lives, we recognize the same thing can and sometimes does happen to our lives. And we applied it and said this then, that our greatest battles do not usually come when we are working hard. They come when we have some leisure, when we've got time on our hands, when we are bored. Satan is clever. He's certainly deceptive and times mightily manipulative. He knows our weakness, and he knows then the perfect time to maybe exploit our weakness is during the time we have on our hands that are extra during the idle or leisure time. That was our first application, that Satan often finds some mischief for idle hands to do. Our second application, rather quickly, kind of left David a little bit and pertained maybe more critically as we looked at Bathsheba. We talked about how Bathsheba was not without some faults of her own. Recall that she decided she chose to take this bath in the afternoon hours. Raymond Brown, as he looks upon 2 Samuel chapter 11, observes that when we read this terrible story, we instinctively think of the offense as David's sin. But this attractive woman, remember she was described as very beautiful, cannot be entirely excused. Bathsheba was careless and foolish. Lacking in the usual Hebrew modesty, 
or she certainly would not have washed in a place where she knew she could be overlooked. From her rooftop, she would often have looked out to the royal palace and must have known that she could be seen. So being perhaps a little critical also then of Bathsheba and her actions, we made a second application that it is not merely enough for us to avoid sin ourselves, we must not be a stumbling block for others. You know, Bathsheba should practice more modesty. I mean, no doubt David is the aggressor in the account, but Bathsheba played a contributing role and was certainly a factor, which then taught us that in regards to sin, we too should never be a stumbling block for someone else. So two applications emerged in the first few verses we dissected last week of the 17. Today, like I mentioned, we return to those 17 verses and we find yet another application. So stand with me this morning as we read the text once more. Again, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're going to read verses 1 through 17, the exact same text as last week. We read it once more because there's more application. So here's what it tells us in the reading of 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Well, then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Well, then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow. I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in the presence and drank so that he made him drunk. In the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down 
and died. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the reading here today. And we ask, Lord, yes, that we always do the blessing be upon it. But today, Lord, we read again this account that we're so familiar with pertaining to that sin of David and Bathsheba. We had application last week, Lord, and just we pray today that you'll lead and guide and direct us to the application you have for us to receive here yet today upon this text that we know so well. So, Lord, we thank you for what shall happen here today as we apply this text to our modern day lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, since we've already kind of summarized and recapped the first couple of verses that we got into last week during the introduction, let us leap immediately now back into the text and go a little further, not much further, but go back to verses 3 and 4. Because verses 3 and 4 has yet another application, which we will eventually get to, but let us first dissect it. And look again at verse 3 and 4, and let me read, I know we just read it, but let me read it one more time, because I want you to hear or look and listen. David sent and inquired about the woman. The woman we know is Bathsheba. One said, the servant, in case David somehow did not know, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers and took her. She came to him, and he lay with her. Well, then she returned to her house. That's another reading of verses 3 and 4. So let me ask you, did you see it or did you hear it? Something that maybe sticks out in the verses? If not, look again once more, because notice that we know that Bathsheba's been described in verse 2 as very beautiful, drop-dead gorgeous woman. Not very often does the text describe someone as very beautiful. It's quite often... We've seen the text tell us in various accounts of beautiful women, like Sarah, Tamar, and some others. They're beautiful, described as beautiful, but not very beautiful. So yeah, Bathsheba maybe is above all other women in that regard. She's gorgeous. David sees her. Very beautiful woman bathing. Now David then, we've already said last week, we know he should have looked away or found some other activity to occupy his time. But what does he do? He sins for her. His lust, his desire, gets the best of him. That's what happens, but here's what I want you to see. When David then looks upon Bathsheba, that beautiful woman begins to desire her, look what the servant tells his master. Look at the servant. He's, now, the servant means a, a, a servant to the master says, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? The servant is telling his master, Look, this woman, your majesty, is married. She's married. Leave her alone. Maybe I'm adding slightly to the text, but notice how a red flag goes up from a servant to his master. 
an unnamed servant sent David a warning, a red flag. Now, just make it sure it's abundantly clear. You know what a red flag is, right? A red flag means stop. Don't go any further. You know I like to go to sprint car racing. I think I've talked about it a few times before. Kayla sometimes accompanies me, and she will every once in a while go when she's in the mood. All right? But when we go to these sprint car races, whether it's Hopstot or whether it's anywhere else in the state, Somebody at some point will have a wreck. They'll flip the car over. It's exciting when that happens. But it's so exciting, even though we're into it, the rest of the drivers get a red flag. They're told to stop. Like, don't go any further. That's the red flag. Dave was getting the red flag. He said, stop. Don't go any further, dude. Stop right here, right now. The unnamed servant is a flagman. He's waving a red flag in front of David, and he's telling him to stop and do not commit this sin and adultery. But David doesn't listen, which brings up an observation for us. Have you ever noticed that when we are so determined to do something, that seldom can anybody ever talk you out of it. You ever notice that? Now, for me in my situation, you know, there's times I will ask Sheila for her opinion, all right? And when I ask her for her opinion, I'm going to give you a little time of confession, all right, a little time of confession, I'll admit that when I ask for her opinion, I'll simply ask sometimes to hear her response. And then I will do whatever I want to do. That's what happens quite often, actually. And I'm sure there's times that probably gets her quite frustrated with me. Luckily, she forgives me, all right? But in the text, that's what the servant is doing. He's given David a warning. He's given him a red flag. And we don't see an illustration here or evidence that this servant is frustrated with David because David just does what he wants to do. Because he tells David, look, dude, she's married. Just go your own way and leave her alone. But notice in verses 3 and 4 that as David takes his own action, something tells us about David's character a little bit about who he is, or something at least tells us a little interesting thing about David. I mean, it doesn't leap out at us. It's hidden, but it's embedded and it's there. What is it that maybe we find about David that maybe we can also apply to our lives when we get in the same situation, when we're tempted like David is? Maybe not with the same temptation, but nonetheless still tempted. What is it? It is this, that at this particular moment, when David began to yield to his lust and his desire, God was quite unreal to David. Same thing happens to us when we're given a warning. or we're t- we, we know what we should do and what we should not do. And at that moment, we decide to take a particular action, like maybe David's deciding to only take his action. God is pretty unreal to us at that moment. He said, okay, I hear you, but what does that really mean? It means in regards to David. Remember this, that I mentioned last week, David is not some teenager. I mean, he's not having this young hormonal imbalance in his life. He's mature. He's strong. He's stable. David is approximately 50 years old. 
He's been king of Israel over 20 years. And as he's lived his life, there's been multiple encounters in which he's learned to count on God in faith. I mean, in short, God has been faithful to David. And likewise, David, upon many occasions, has been faithful to God. You say, well, do you have an example? Well, yes, there's many examples in the text throughout 1 Samuel and into 2nd. But maybe the best example to use for a quick illustration is in 1 Samuel 17 with the account of David and Goliath. You remember David and Goliath. You remember the Goliath, I mean, the gargantuan man of nine feet tall who goes out each and every day and taunts the Israelites. You know, David comes up on the scene quite suddenly in 1 Samuel 17, and he's there pretty much because his father has asked him to go check on his brothers. As he comes up on the scene, he sees this ugly, big, gargantuan Philistine, this Goliath, with all of his armor and everything on, taunting the Israelites day after day and talking about the Lord and the Israelites. Well, David's going to have no part of it. In 1 Samuel 17 and verse 37, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of Philistine. I mean, David was putting trust in God and had faith in God that he would deliver the, the Philistines and Goliath from the Israelites. He also said then in verse 45, as he got ready to battle and engage, you come to me, the Philistine to Goliath, with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God, the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give, your, give you into our hand. So notice the confidence that David has in God. I mean, he knows God will deliver. He knows that God will deliver. He knows that God is faithful. And he is just as faithful to God. But that was then, and this is now. Fast forward to the account in 2 Samuel 7, 11 with Bathsheba. David ignores the warning from his servant. It's like he's so determined to move forward with Bathsheba, he doesn't see the possibility the servant is intervening on behalf of God. So at that moment then, like it can be for all of us, when there's a temptation alluring, it's beauty. God was quite unreal to David. He's acting on his own actions. David is out of control. Acting merely on his own flesh and desire. Chuck Swindoll comments on David's action and said David is indeed out of control. Out of control, he said no to all the things he should have said yes to. And yes to all the things he should have said no to. By now, for David, his desire for sexual pleasure with that woman was paramount. He moves quickly, ignoring any warning 
and also the consequences. Applying observation and comment to our lives, how are we at times? I mean, don't we also at times say no to God, no to the Spirit, the guide, the counselor, and yes to the enemy's illusory attraction, allure, appeal? Don't we sometimes say yes to that and no to God? I think at times, unfortunately, we all do. As I mentioned earlier, the fact is that every one of us, we know the things we should do, and we know the things we should not do. I mean, we're smart people. We're educated adults. I mean, we, we've lived long enough to know what God expects of us. But when Satan positions some sort of temptation in front of us that he, he knows that we'll consider. I mean, it, it seems to get the best of us. And before we know it, we've done something we know we shouldn't do. It's an internal struggle that exists for everyone. Everyone. No one really is exempt. As you're looking at me, no one is exempt from having some sort of internal conflict, internal struggle from within that happens in our lives. Maybe, maybe not to you recently. But all of us have had an internal struggle and conflict that exists between the things we know we should not do, but then we're tempted to, and the things we should do, say no to. I mean, happens for you, happens for me, happens for people like Billy Graham, happens for people like Peter, disciples, happened to Paul. And so Paul wrote about it in, in Romans chapter 7. He says a bit of a confession. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. And he says in verse 23, then I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And if you hear that from what Paul is saying there as almost a confession, it's like he's torn. Like we also can be. I mean, he wants to do good. He wants to do what is right. But then he fails to do so. He falls. I mean, his words directly remind us that an inner conflict exists in every believer. And Paul goes on in Romans chapter 7 and verse 24, maybe even desperation, then realizing that's the situation. He says, wretched man that I am. And then he asks in the same verse, who will deliver me from this body of death? Of course, he answers also in the next verse, who will answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul confesses then a realization that we all must face, that I myself serve the law of God with my mind. We, we serve God with our mind, but our flesh does something different, and we serve in the law of sin. Because when we think about it, I mean, it's true. I mean, so many different times our flesh wins over our mind and our heart. I mean, you can have the best intentions to do what we know we should do. 
but the flesh just seems to outrule that. I mean, it certainly happens now to David in this account. I mean, no doubt David knew better. To give him some credit, he knew better than to take Bathsheba and to be with her. But he caves into the temptation. If you will, he relinquishes his power to say no to the master of deceit. I mean, like he has to have Bathsheba. He's out of control. It's his mind. It's the flesh over the body, over the heart. So in recognizing that, go back to the text and see what happens next. Verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him. He lay with her. Of course, we got the part in parentheses, but jumped that she then afterwards returned to her house. So notice David and Bathsheba willingly engage. And when it's over, Bathsheba leaves and returns home. A night of passion and pleasure is done. The moment is over. So everybody can just pack up and go back to their regular life, right? No harm, no foul. It's all over. See you later. Not exactly, verse 5. Didn't quite work out like that. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David three words. I am pregnant. A modern translation of what David's doing next, he says, oh, snap. It's not over. It's not over. It goes back and reminds us then the theme underlying all this is that sin always bears consequences. And the consequence of this adulterous affair is about to get real. But before we expand upon the consequence, we take a really quick time out. Because we've got to point out something about the temptation and the subsequent consequences to follow. The question to consider for just a quick time out before we point something out to leave the application is who tempted David? The answer, of course, is Satan, the enemy. Remember, temptation never comes from God. In case we get confused on that, James reminds us of this fact in James chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. God does not tempt David with Bathsheba. It's the work of the enemy. It's the work of Satan. All right, so there's a setup. Now, watch this. After then that happens, we see that throughout the account, it's about to get even worse which you may not have time for today, but have to be next week. But it's about to get worse. But here's the question we have to consider as we see the temptation comes from Satan. All right? The question is this. Where is Satan when the temptation is over? I mean, he's nowhere to be found. He's not around anymore. His job is done, exactly. He tricked, he lured, he deceived, he painted this beautiful rosy picture once you bit from the fruit, he's gone. Referring once again to Swindoll, he observes and says this. It's been my observation over the years 
that the devil never tips his hand in temptation. He shows you the beauty, the ecstasy, the fun, the excitement, and the stimulating adventure of stolen desires. But he never tells the heavy drinker, tomorrow morning there'll be a hangover. Ultimately, you'll ruin your family. He never tells the drug user early on. This is the beginning of a long, sorrowful, dead-end road. He never tells the thief, you're going to get caught, friend. You do this, and you wind up behind bars. He certainly doesn't warn the adulterer. You'll know pregnancy is a real possibility. He's nowhere to be found after this. That comment, thought, and observation leads to the application for today, which is this. When the sin is done, and all the penalties of that sin come due, the devil is nowhere to be found. He's nowhere to be found. It's like Satan vacates the scene the very moment we indulge. I mean, he, 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 he stays just long enough while we ponder it, contemplate it, consider it. We kind of toy with the idea, but when the act begins, he's gone. He's out of there. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, Satan is aware that you or I or David has indulged and gratified ourselves. He's aware of that. But his awareness is at a distance as he simply smiles at your fall. But note how he was the encourager all along. However, afterward, the enemy, Satan, just kind of leaves you with no encouragement. I mean, the deed is done. His part is over. When the consequences kick in, he's nowhere to be found. If only we could remember during the enticement, during the allurement, if only we could remember sin always bears consequences. But we just don't think that far ahead. Or at least in the text, David certainly didn't think that far ahead. I mean, remember, he had somebody to warn him. A servant of his says, David, this man, I mean, or this woman is married to Uriah. She's a man's wife. But David didn't listen. Because he didn't listen, he will now have to face the consequences of his decision. It's all too familiar with ourselves. I mean, with, with, with us. I mean, Maybe we're not adulterers, okay? We're not David. We're not in his predicament. But yet we sin nonetheless. We fall victim to the enemy and his deception. So the question then rather quickly becomes this, then what can we do? I mean, if that's what's happening to all of us, and surely will, what can we do? What can we do from falling to him? What David, what should he have done? We talked last week about how David certainly should have found something else for himself to do. He shouldn't have looked any longer, found some sort of activity, kingdom work to get done. There's always something to do. But the best advice given to anyone, to David or to any of us, is that when Satan comes calling, and he will, and he paints that beautiful picture and begins to lure and entice you, the best thing to do is to flee. It is to run. I mean run. Run, flee as fast as you can. 
And if you're John and Dan over here saying, dude, I don't run. I can't run. My knees kill me. I'm too old to run. I just can't run. Well, get away any way you can and as fast as you can. I mean, Paul told Timothy, flee, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. We are to flee the enemy. Anytime he begins to allure us, entice us, tempt us, we are to flee. Run away as fast as we possibly can. Leave the scene. Do not put yourselves in a position. Diedrich Bonhoeffer offered these words of wisdom. He said, the Bible teaches that in times of temptation in the flesh, there is one command, flee. Flee fornication. Flee adultery. Flee youthful lust. Flee the lust of the world, the desires of the world. Flee them. He said, there's no resistance to Satan in lust other than flight. Every struggle against lust or desire in one's own strength is doomed to failure. I mean, essentially, Bonhoeffer's statement here states that if you do not run, when temptation comes and you do not run, it's highly likely you will fall. He says it's only a matter of time. And when you run from temptation, that lust or that desire begins to back off. He says, furthermore, if you try to fight it on your own strength, you might win a few, but you'll lose more than you win. And it's only a matter of time. Now, if you fully consider those words, you know it's true. That there's only one course of action that every one of us must take. It is to flee. Avoid putting yourself in a compromising position. When you begin to get in that situation, remove yourself from that environment. I mean, we have the ability, in a sense, and the power, if you will, to say no. But we fail at times to exercise that power to say no. We succumb, we yield, we indulge. And when we do so, like David, we have to face the consequences. We don't have time today then to get on all the consequences that follow and for the rest of what David begins to do to cover up what's happened. We'll save that last part for next week. But the text still tells us that when the enemy begins to present itself, the best thing for us to do is to flee. And that's not new stuff. Most of us have heard the message before, and we know to do that. But we have to commit to that action, to flee. Run away from Satan. Because once we indulge and the consequences follow, he's nowhere after that to be found. He's done his part. It's over. He trapped you. Do not fall to his deception. Run and flee. Father, we thank you for this message today and for what it reminds us. The message, Lord, we know all well at times that we should be doing is to flee, to run. Lord, we're thankful this account we're dissecting can be able to remind us of that. Lord, we're thankful that as we get ready to 
run and plead that you're there with us, Lord, to help us. I pray, Lord, we recognize that you're always there for us. And you give us the chance, Lord, to say no, and I pray, Lord, we exercise it. So, Lord, thank you for being there for us. We just pray, Lord, that we be better people then as a result of all the things that we do. We please, Lord, and thank that you forgive us when we do. Yield to the temptation to commit that sin. But, Lord, let us repent. Let us be better people here today. Recognize that we have got to flee and say no. So thank you for the message today. It reminds us of that fact. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.